Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Several weeks ago, I read an article that posed the question, why does God matter? And I wish I could recall the author, um, but I can't. I can't even find it. I can't remember where I read it. But the question has stuck with me. Why does God matter? And the question was not antagonistic. It wasn't written by someone who hates religion or hates spirituality. It was actually written by a person of faith who was asking the faithful, asking spiritual or religious people, why does God matter? And so think of it this way. If I asked you in the midst of our moment of pandemic and protest, why does God matter? What would you say? What would be your response? Not where is God or how can God allow this to happen? Why does God matter? In other words, when we're talking about the importance of black lives, when we're crying out and taking action against injustice, why does God matter in that conversation? When we're talking about the pandemic and we're talking about people being quarantined and emotional and spiritual health and self-care, why does God matter in that conversation? This is what I want to think about together today. Because in our current moment with the pandemic and the protests and the riots and everything else, why does God matter? Now, on top of this question that I've been kind of ruminating on, uh, several episodes ago, or maybe it was just two, I don't recall, uh, my friend Kobe Martin was with us on the podcast talking about his new book, The Shift. And by the way, shout outs to Colby. If you have not bought the book, I would highly encourage you to purchase The Shift by Colby Martin. He has a chapter in it that we discussed uh, about God. And he and I spent a good deal of time talking about this chapter on the podcast. And I said to him, I think you should write a whole book about God. <laughs> And some of you responded on email and said, love the episode, you need to do an episode about God. So there were people saying, do an episode about God. I have this question of why does God matter in my head? And I thought, you know what? Let's just put it all together and talk about this. Now, I recognize that there are some who may be listening who just when you hear the word God, there's something about that word, you just can't do it anymore. For whatever reason, there's multiple reasons. Um, maybe that it's just loaded with too much meaning that in some sense of, in your world has become meaningless. Uh, maybe it carries all kinds of baggage. Maybe it's connected to a faith tradition that has wounded you. Whatever it is, you hear the word God and you just want to change the channel, or I guess in this case it would be listen to a different podcast, because something in your mind, you can't do this word anymore. And so... As much as I'm able to, I have, I've know several people who feel this way, I understand as much as I am able. And part of the reason I want to talk about God is because in some ways, and in many ways actually, this word has taken on so many different meanings and ideas and concepts and images and pictures that may not be helpful. And maybe if we talk about the divine if we talk about God, then we'll arrive at something that can be more helpful and maybe even more faithful. Now, you also might be in a place as you're listening where you think this question, why does God matter, is pointless. You don't need to ask, what do you mean, why does God matter? Everything about God matters in this situation. Or you might hear this idea of like, hey, let's explore this idea of God. And it might be like, what do you mean? 
We know who God is, and we can talk about God. Why do we need to do this? You might actually think this whole podcast episode is unnecessary. And wherever you are between those two places, you can't do the word God, or you think the question does not need to be asked. I want to say this. Part of my reason for talking about this today is I think it's always helpful for us to spend time considering together ideas, thoughts, beliefs, especially with regard to the divine, especially with regard to God. Because if we ever get to a place where we stop talking about something, what that suggests is that it's not, it's not important to us, that it's not valuable to us. But if something is important, it's something that we always want to stop, think about, course correct if necessary, learn more, grow in our understanding of it. And that's what my hope is today, is that we would deepen our understanding together, even just a little bit, and ultimately not answer the question for you, why does God matter, but leave you with a way of wrestling with that question at a deeper level. So today, I want to first talk about the idea of the divine, and then a little bit about Jesus. Like, what do we do with Jesus and God? How does all of that work? How does Jesus fit into all of this? Which is a kind of a funny way of saying it. And then I want to respond and give some thoughts on the idea of why God matters. So first then, the divine. If someone were to ask me, who is God? I can honestly say I would not be able to respond with precision. I, I, don't, I don't actually know. At some level, it's like an agnosticism. It's, I, I don't, I've, I've told people before I feel sometimes like a Christian agnostic that I have a heart that longs to follow Jesus, but there's so much I don't know. And the longer I live, the more okay I am with not knowing. Now, by the way, I'm not being like clever here. I'm not being coy. I'm not going to come back later and be like, well, of course I know the answer. I genuinely don't. I've said from the platform of Denver Community Church on occasion, I don't know who or what God is fully. And for some people to hear a pastor say that, it can be a little unsettling. Like you're, you're the person who's supposed to have all the answers. And let me just add, if you ever encounter a pastor who really believes that they have all the answers, run. <laughs> Get out of there. That's usually called a cult, not a church. But I really don't know who or what God is fully. And here's why I say that. There's an interesting story in Exodus chapter 3. We, this is where we meet, well, the second time we meet an individual named Moses. Moses being the greatest prophet from within the Jewish tradition. Moses, if you know the story, was born at a time where uh, the king of Egypt said, we're going to kill all Hebrew babies who had are born male because it's a way of population control and the Hebrew people are reproducing too fast. And if they keep reproducing, they're going to outnumber the Egyptians. They're going to turn on us and they're going to kill us. So let's just start killing babies. So they begin this program of infanticide, and Moses' mother gives birth to him, hides him for a few months, and eventually sends him down the river in a basket where he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter who takes him to be her own son. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. Meanwhile, Pharaoh continues this program of infanticide, as far as we know, and continues to enslave the Hebrew people. Now, Moses grows up. He's out walking around one day, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver 
beating a Hebrew slave, and he loses his cool, strikes the slave driver, kills him, and then he goes on the run as a fugitive because he doesn't get away with his crime. He runs to uh, the wilderness area, the desert area called Midian. It's there that he meets Jethro. He marries one of Jethro's daughters, and Jethro, his father-in-law, employs him as a shepherd. Moses is out tending sheep one day, and he sees this bush that is on fire, but the bush is not burning up. And so Moses says to himself, according to the text, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush burns but does not burn up. He walks over, and as he draws closer, this voice speaks out to him from the bush. Now, this is one of the things I love (laughs) among many about the Bible, is it treats this whole thing going on like a pretty pedestrian, normal, everyday occurrence. There's a bush burning. It's not burning up. Moses is like, hey, I'll go over and see this. A voice calls out to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses' response is, here I am. Like, it's just this, eh, this is what's happening. Well, we learn the voice in this absolutely supernatural moment is the voice of God. And he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the cry of my people has reached my ears. And I'm sending you back to Pharaoh to say, let my people go and worship me in the wilderness. And Moses begins to protest and resist a little bit. And one of the things he says to God, one of the early questions he says is, listen, if I go there and they ask, who sent you? What do I say? In other words, he's asking God, who are you? And God says God's name. I am who I am. Tell them I am who I am sent you. Now, in the, in the English, the, the, the translation I am who I am seems pretty straightforward, but it's all over the place in Hebrew, and it's actually a difficult, difficult understanding. People genuinely have wrestled over exactly what these words mean for centuries and centuries. Nahum Sarna, who's a Jewish scholar, says that the phrase, I am who I am, indicates that the earliest recorded understanding of the divine name was a verb. The earliest recorded understanding of God's name was a verb. Not only that, but he goes on, he says, the verb was derived from a stem of an earlier verb, meaning to be. So then he says, So the name of God, the earliest recorded understanding of the divine name, expresses the quality of absolute being, the eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence, which means God's name is a verb. Now, here's why this is important. In the ancient world, names bestowed upon somebody their identity. Take, for example, Jacob. Jacob's name, Yaakov, in the Hebrew, it means liar or deceiver or literally one who grasps the heel. And Jacob is a liar. This is the story that we learn about him. He's this deceiver, this younger brother of Esau. But then Jacob, later in his life, wrestles with God, and his name is changed to Yitzrael or Israel, one who wrestles or one who struggles with the divine, one who struggles with God. These names were an identity. It was something that you carried. It was a way of expressing who you were. So God's name, his identity, this, this expression of who God is, well, it expresses the quality of absolute being, the eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence. This is what Moses hears 
about God, which means, well, it means it doesn't clear things up. It means it muddies things. It means it makes things more mysterious. It means it makes things uh, harder to understand because God is not a being like we think of a being, like a bigger human, a stronger, with stronger power, a God who sees everything, a God who's somewhere up there. By the way, this is the way gods have long been fashioned. If you look at any ancient images of ancient gods, of primitive gods, almost all of them have some sort of human quality about them. Sometimes there's like animal limbs or body parts mixed in. But all of them have this, there's a sense of like they're all superior to humans. So they're like us, but they're just a few notches above where we are. That they're this this being with some kind of power, this being with some kind of um, knowledge that we don't have, this being with some kind of power over life in death, this being that lives somewhere else than right here where we are. But what's interesting, this is not the way God is introduced to us in the scripture. God is introduced as being. God is introduced as something uh, wholly other than us. And what's fascinating is this God who introduces himself to Moses is the God who leads the people out of, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when they go into the desert, God says, I want to have a relationship with you, the people of Israel. And he creates a contract of sorts. This contract that is created, according to Exodus chapter 20, is something we call the Ten Commandments. And one of the stipulations of the contract is you shall not make any graven images representing God. Don't, don't try to fashion me uh, or a picture of me or carve stone that looks like me. Now, if God is being or God is wholly other, there's this idea of don't even try because you can't. I'm, I'm not like anything you could picture. I'm not like anything you could imagine. There's actually a story about General Pompey in, I think it's 63 BC, somewhere around there, where he leads the Roman, Romans into Judah and into Jerusalem to bring them under Roman control. And it says, according to Tacitus, who's a historian, he goes into the temple, and the temple was divided. You had the outer court, then you had uh, the building itself, the actual temple, and you would go into um, different rooms in it. And the, the one room that the high priest only went into once a year was called the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence dwelled, is what we're told. And so Pompey goes into the temple, and it said he was astounded by, the, by how sacred it was. But when he went into the Holy of Holies, he found it completely empty. And he was deeply puzzled because every single temple had images of the gods in it. If you went to a temple in Rome or in Greece or in ancient Mesopotamia or Egypt or anywhere, you would see statues or paintings or reliefs that were reflecting the gods. This God says, Nope, don't do that. You can't even image or imagine what I am. I am being itself. I am wholly other, or as Paul Tillich says, I am the ground of all being. This is the God that we cannot wrap our head around. 
This is the divine that is the source of all things. This is the God that cannot be named. As a matter of fact, even this name that God gives to, the, to Moses and that's recorded and passed along, our Jewish friends say, this is the ineffable name. This is the unspeakable name. We can't pronounce this name. This, just the pronunciation of it is in fact, is in of itself a total and complete mystery. There's one rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who says that the sound of God's name is simply breathing. That this is what the name of God is. It's simply breathing. That every time you breathe, you're breathing and saying the name of God. God is a mystery. And by the way, this is not new. This is not like a new idea. This goes all the way back, obviously, to Moses. But even within church history, this is not a new idea. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers from the third century, said, if you understand, sorry, fourth century, if you understand it is not God. This is what Augustine said. If you understand, it is not God. If you can wrap your head around it, in other words, well, you're talking about something, but you're not talking about the divine. If you can explain it, you're explaining something, but you're not explaining the divine. Aquinas said, then alone do we know God truly. When we believe that God is far above all that humans can possibly think of God. Then alone do we know God truly. When we believe that God is far above all that humanity can possibly think of God. This is the idea that like, if you can imagine it, if you can explain it, if you can wrap your head around it, fine. Just know that's not truly God. And by the way, Athanasius talks about this. The early church fathers and mothers and the desert fathers and mothers, they all talk about this. Our trick is, is that most of our mental furniture has been arranged in our rooms, so to speak, by the Enlightenment, by the scientific method, by empiricism that says, unless you can prove it, it's not real. Notice Augustine and Aquinas, and other, they're saying the opposite. They're saying, no, no, if you can't explain it, it might be real, but it's not God. God is wholly other. And, and this flies in the face, by the way, of the training that I received when I was in seminary. When I was in seminary, we had to take three semesters of systematic theology. Now, you might hear that and be like, three semesters of systematic theology? That sounds terrible. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it was. Now, it has its place, but I wasn't a fan. And what we had to do is we went through all, you know, the, the theology about the Bible, theology about God, theology about spirit, theology about Jesus, theology, I mean, just all the way down. Theology about sin, theology about angels. And we had to write confessions about each of those subjects. It sounds like a bad movie, like tomorrow night on seminary confessions. <laughs> um, but we did. We wrote seminary confessions. And there weren't like you talking about the, like some, something wrong you've done. It was a way of saying, this is what I believe to be true. And we had to write confessions about God. 
And, and they had to be very, very like exacting and particular, and they had to have support, and we had to quote scripture. And, and I'm like, that whole exercise in and of itself flies in the face of what we know God to be. I'm writing a paper explaining God. Augustine would have been like, hey, that's great, man. That's not God. Aquinas would have said, hey, um, you're explaining something. Decent writing. That's also not God. And you might be listening thinking, wait, wait, wait. So we, we can't know God? Is that what you're like? We, we can't? No God. And I'm like, well, no, that's actually not it. We can know God, but we cannot know God entirely because God is endlessly knowable. And this is an important thing for us to consider because when we talk about knowing God, we often think of it as a mental assent to a certain statement or a certain series of statements. And we can say, yes, I can agree with that. This knowing that we're talking about is something deeper. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of connection. Like if I talk about knowing somebody close to me, I'm not just talking about a mental understanding of who they are. I'm talking about a deep and profound connection with another person. And I believe in that sense, yes, we can know, we can be intimate, we can experience union with the divine. But when it comes to the mental ascent and explanation part, I go, mm, no. No, that's, that's not, that's actually not what we're invited to do. We can know God, but you know what? Frankly, I don't want a God that I can explain. I don't want a God that I can write a paper about and get an A on, or if I'm being really honest, more of a B, but I, I don't want that kind of God. And actually, I would say, I don't think any of us really do. We don't even want this in our human relationships. I mean, if you think about times that you've spent with different people. If you've ever gone out on a date, let's say, and 20 minutes into the date, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, I have already plumbed the depths of this person that I'm sitting across the table with. I've learned everything there is to know about them. And something in you is like, this person is not very interesting, at least to me. Nothing in you wants to say after like, hey, yeah, let's do this again next week. But the same cannot be said when you meet somebody and they seem to have endless depth. We seem to be drawn to that. I think about my wife. We've been married, uh, it'll be 21 years in September. Our marriage will be uh, old enough to drink. And th there's still things I'm learning about her. And in learning these things about her, as different things, I, as I see them, I realize there's even more to learn. And... It's the gift that keeps giving because every time I learn something new or we encounter something together or new parts of our relationship unfold before us, I'm also learning things about myself. We are drawn to this kind of depth. We even talk about people like this being intriguing. How much more than the divine? Do we really just want static propositional statements about a supreme being sitting in a gold throne with a long white beard somewhere out there? I don't know that we want that. But so much of the way we talk about God and think about God and even the attributes we apply to God, picture God as some sort of supreme being out there. And here's what I'm, what I'm learning all of the time. God is a mystery. 
God is not so comprehensible and expressible as so many of us want to believe and as so many would want us to believe. And I find a great deal of comfort in that because I don't want a God that I can wrap my head around. I don't want a God that I can easily explain. I want a God that can be endlessly explored and endlessly known. I want a God with whom I can have union in depth. This is the God that we're introduced to in the Bible. This is the God that was spoken of constantly before the age of the Enlightenment. It's not a God you can prove, and if you can prove it, to paraphrase Augustine, it's not God. If you can explain it, it's not God. If you can understand it, it's not God. So when we talk about God, God is this this mystery. And what we see throughout the pages of the text is all the ways this mystery continues to unfold in the midst of the human story. Now, you might think, so if the name of God speaks of who God is, and that name is unpronounceable or inexpressible, um, and if we can understand it or explain it, it's not God, can we even speak of God? And I would say yes, Absolutely, I think we can speak of God. As a matter of fact, if we understand God as this endlessly knowable uh, ground of being that is wholly other, then we can actually, we'll never run out of ways of talking about God. And we see this, by the way, in the sacred text, which ought to be for us a source of wisdom. What we see in the sacred text is there's all sorts of ways people are expressing and talking about and thinking about this divine mystery. It doesn't shut us down in so much. How, let me ask it this way. How much of our faith tradition has been about ending conversation? Somebody asks a question. There's a chapter. There's a verse. There's an explanation. Next question. Another question. There's a chapter and a verse. Next question. And it goes on like this. We come to the text and it closes things down. We talk about God and theology and it's a way of ending things. But if God becomes this expansive, divine mystery, well, now things open way, way up. And the conversation, even though it's been going on for thousands of years, is still just in its infancy. It's just getting started. This kind of invitation, this gives me great comfort. This excites me. This is something that I say, now that is something that I want to give my life to. And if you look in the text, you realize this is what's happening over and over. There's all different ways of talking about God. They're all pictures. They're all metaphors. They're trying to, they're aiming at something. They're trying to bring us somewhere, knowing no matter how complete the metaphor may feel, It'll never fully express the divine. God is a rock. God is a strong tower. God is a light. God is life. God is mother. God is father. God is lady wisdom. God is all of these images. Living water. Help us understand an aspect, but all of them are just slivers. And we're invited to consider that, to contemplate that. Not to end the conversation, but to open it up. It's a way of recognizing no one way of talking about God will ever serve to fully capture the divine mystery. And this, by the way, is where I want to begin exploring how Jesus fits into all of this. Uh, When we see the New Testament writers talking about Jesus, 
what we see them talking about is something far bigger than just the historical Jesus who was born, according to the gospel writers, in Bethlehem, in modern-day Palestine, and lived for roughly 33 years in that region of the world who was crucified, buried, resurrected, and then ascended. There's the historical Jesus who within the Christian tradition we understand to be fully God, fully human, to be a picture of the divine union. But the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament say, yes, there's the historical Jesus, but within that historical Jesus is something, and there's a story that is so much bigger than him. This story stretches back to the moment the universe burst into existence. This story is told down to the smallest particles of existence in the universe. This story is told even into the largest parts of of existence in our universe through the stars and through the heavens. This story is expansive in its scope. John, in his gospel and in his first letter to the church, He talked about this being the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word who was God and was with God in the beginning. He then later says, oh, and by the way, this Word is now put on flesh and bone, and it's Jesus. So Jesus is the Word of God. You see Paul talk about this. You see the writer of Hebrews talk about this. In Colossians and Ephesians, Paul talks about it, that that, that Jesus who was the historical Jesus, but he's also the Christ. He's also the Word. He's also this God, this divine being in whom and through whom all things exist. All things were created for him and by him, we're told. All in him, all things hold together. This idea that that the writers are getting at is this expansive mystery that we refer to as the divine, that we refer to as God is now located in a unique way in Jesus, in the historical Jesus, the one who lived for 33 years or so in Israel. And when John talks about this idea of it being the word, well, for the Greek reader of John's gospel, the the word could mean like conversation, uh, or it could mean like an account, like I'd like to have a word with you. Um, But the deeper meaning, according to the Greek philosophers, is that the word, or logos, as it would be in the Greek, that's the thing that gave shape and form and life to all things. It, it, it was the, that which gave shape and form to the cosmos and to humanity. They also said that the, the logos forms a bridge between man and the universe and the divine in one another. The way they expressed it is they said, logos is the transcendent order binding humanity to the entire universe. Lagos is that which permeated all things and held them together. So if you were a Greek thinker or a Roman and you picked up John's gospel and you read in the beginning was Lagos, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course. Because Lagos gave shape and form to all things in the universe, including humanity. Lagos is the bridge between man and the universe and the divine and one another. It's the transcendent order that binds humanity to the whole universe. It's that which permeates all things and holds them together. John says, right, okay, now you're getting it. That logos, that word, that force, that energy, however you want to say it, that is present in flesh and bone, in the person of the historical Jesus. Now, if you were a Jewish person 
and you read John's words at the beginning of his gospel, no doubt when you hear in the beginning, you would have connected it directly to Genesis. And then when John talks about how the world came into being, he's referencing that poetry. And for the Jewish people, they understood that the word, word or devar in their language, was one that was filled with power. It carried all kinds of potential and all kinds of energy. And they understood this because in their creation poem in Genesis 1, what happens? How do things come into being? It comes into being through words. God speaks in light, in dark, or, or the light appears, and God separates the light from the darkness. God speaks and dry ground appears. God speaks and planets and stars and cattle and humanity come into being. Words have power. And the word for them was dynamic and it was filled with divine power as they thought of it. And John says, yeah, okay. So when you think about the word, devar, and you recognize that it has power, that it has the power to bring about this universe, that it is dynamic, that it's filled and dripping and soaking wet with divine power. Yes, okay, that is present in skin and bone in the historical Jesus. Because for them, or for both the Jewish thinker and the Greek thinker, this idea of word or lagos or devar spoke of God's relationship to the universe It spoke of how the divine sustained and held all things together. This is what John says is present in Jesus, which means Jesus is the face of this power, of this energy, of this word, of this life, of the God who is wholly other. That when we think of this, when we say, can I get to know this God? Well, yes, this is Part of what is beautiful and powerful about the person of Jesus is Jesus says, if you want to get to know this God, look at me. Jesus is the face of God who is holy other, which means, let me say it this way, if you can't say it about Jesus, then you cannot say it about God. Now, if you take, think about that for a moment, it's like, well, wait, wait a second. What about all the passages in the Old Testament where God says things like, show them no mercy, which by the way, is a quote of God in the Hebrew scriptures. Show them no mercy. Wipe them out. Man, woman, child, elderly, all of their cattle. Obliterate them. This is like genocide on steroids. That's what I want you to do. Now, you might take a step back and say, I cannot picture Jesus saying that. Okay, if you can't say it about Jesus, you can't say it about God, which instantly begins to raise significant questions about what was happening in the Hebrew scriptures, which is probably an episode or maybe a whole series of episodes for another day. Actually, I should say that in the fall, we're doing um, six weeks of teaching around God, violence in the Bible at Denver Community Church, where we're going to talk about that very thing. What's going on when God says white people out? Because if it's not true of Jesus, you can't say it about God, but there's things that are said of God that don't appear to be true if we look at Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, what do we see? We see mercy. We see compassion. We see endless love. We see radical inclusion of everybody. We see one who 
adores children and says to his stingy disciples, don't, don't stop the children from getting to me. As a matter of fact, if you really want to know what I'm about, you should become like one of these kids. We see Jesus when he's confronted by a leper who says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing. And Jesus touches the leper, which in that day was a big no-no in case you didn't know that. And not only that, it says after that, Jesus could no longer enter any town, but he stayed out in remote places. Why? Because those are the places where the lepers were. In that day, if you touched a leper, you were a leper. What we always see is that Jesus is in solidarity with the poor and with the oppressed, that Jesus speaks truth to power, but Jesus also has some sort of compassion toward the powerful. When you witness Jesus, you witness this kind of life where you say, that is the kind of life that I like. How many people have you encountered who say like, oh yeah, I'm down with Jesus. It's, it's just the church or it's Christians that I'm not crazy about. Gandhi said that. Gandhi said, I like your Jesus, but not your Christians. This Jesus that so many continue to talk about. This Jesus, according to the Christian tradition, says, this is who is telling you about the universe in which we live. This is who is telling you about the God who is holding it all together. This is who puts flesh and bone, who manifests, who puts on display what kind of world this actually is. This is why Richard Rohr says, when we look at Jesus, we see the face of God who is love, and we can be assured that we live in a benevolent universe, that we live in a universe that is for us, that we serve a God who is for human flourishing. Because if you can't say it about Jesus, you cannot say it about God. And what we witness in Jesus is not just this historic being who lived for a few decades. What we witness is the life and the power and the word and the energy that's held the universe together from the moment it burst into existence. This is, this is where Jesus fits in. When we talk about this God who is a mystery, this God whose name that we can't express, this God whose name is a verb, the divine that is wholly other, the divine that is shrouded in this idea that we can endlessly know this God. Well, Jesus says, well, let me tell you what this power, what this divine life looks like. Look at me and you will know. This is also, by the way, incredibly important because I've spoken about this with people before, and one of the hard things in thinking about God in this way of mystery is, well, can I even get to know this mystery? Can I have a relationship with this mystery? Does this mystery even care? It's interesting. There are some people that refer to God as the universe. Like, oh, I guess the universe is trying to tell me something, which is a fine way of referring to it. But it seems pretty detached and not relational. Now, for some, it might be. I'm just telling you the way that I hear that word when I hear the universe is trying to tell me something. But what Jesus tells us is, no, this God is personal. This God, this divine power does, in fact, care. This divine life is actually holding everything together. So when we say things like, for every tear that you cry, it pains the heart of God. Well, if God is the one who's holding all things together, if every time you breathe, you're saying the name of God, if God is the one who's given life and light to all human beings, then when you cry, when you feel pain, something deeply, 
in an almost physiological way, the divine is experiencing that through you and in you. And so when we see Jesus come and practice solidarity with the oppressed and the poor, and he is, as the writer says, um, tested and tried and tempted in every single way we are, there's something where we go, yeah, God does care. Yes, the divine is knowable. And we can know this divine and be assured of that through Jesus. And not only that, but we can also see it in the way Jesus lives. When Jesus prays, he refers to the divine as Abba, which means daddy. It's like a little kid throwing their arms around the neck of their father saying, daddy or dada. This is the intimate picture. And Jesus says, I want you to have my kind of life. And he even says, you're going to have my kind of life, but to a greater degree. This is why Peter says that we are all participants in the divine nature. It's a way of saying, listen, you can be by grace what Jesus is by nature. You can join the life and the flow of eternal self-giving love that exists between God, Jesus, and the Spirit you can join in that. You can step into that. You can have the same union and depth of intimacy that we see in Jesus. This is where Jesus fits in. This is, when we look at the historical Jesus, we're invited to look at the larger picture being told from the very origins of the universe right up until this moment that there is still this force that is pushing the universe forward, creating existence as it goes, and it currently has a horizon of somewhere around 14.7 billion light years. This is what Jesus reveals to us. And so with all of that, the question is then, okay, so why does God matter? Well, so often we, we live with a view where we have a very distinct divide between humanity and the divine. And this is uh, not unusual. There's a lot of different faith traditions and wisdom traditions that have this idea that there's us, think of it like in terms of up and down, like we typically do. We are below and the gods are above. And there is an expanse. We have to figure out how to cover the ground between us and the gods. In the Christian tradition, it says, no, no, you don't have to worry about covering the distance between you and the divine because Jesus already did that. But what's interesting is there's other places within the Christian tradition and in other wisdom traditions where this idea of there being a division between the divine and human or there being a gap or a chasm between the divine and human, that doesn't exist in, those, in that thinking because what they see is an enmeshment or a union, if you will, between the divine and the human. Now, this is not pantheism where you say, oh, like, the tree is God and the squirrel is God and this dog is God. And it's, it's not saying those are gods. It's saying, but God is in those things, that there is already this union. And what, what I find fascinating is throughout the text, we see hints of that rather consistently, that there is already a union with God. This is what we see in Jesus. I and the Father, Jesus says, are one. We have union. Jesus expresses this longing for us together to have this union with one another, but this union with one another comes through this union with the divine. 
This is why Paul in Colossians chapter 3, when talking about the Christ, and when referring to this Christ as this power, this life, this animating energy that holds all things together, this word through which all things were made and have their being. Paul says that Christ is all and is in all. You see, what's suggested throughout is that we have union with the divine, that the breath in our lungs is the spirit breathing us, that even our very bodies are held together by this power that is the loving power of the divine, which means that if this power, this life, this light is all and is in all, well, it means that there's a connection that we have to all things, that there's a connection between all things. Remember, remember what the Greek people said when they talked about this idea of word. They said the word gives shape and form and life to all things. The word is the transcendent order binding humanity to the whole universe. The word is that which permeates all things and holds them together. For the Jewish people, this idea of word was something that they said had power, had energy. It accomplishes God's work in the world. It brings about new worlds, and it can sustain the universe. And this power is all and is in all. Everything is permeated with the glory and the power of the divine. And so if this is the case, maybe this is why God matters. There's an interesting story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. It's commonly called the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says that someday when the king, the king of glory with all of his angels is going to separate people into two categories, sheep and goats. Sheep will be those on his right. And he will say, come, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was uh, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and I was in prison and you visited me. And he, they go on and on. And then there, the sheep are like, um, when, when did we do that? And he says, because whenever you did it, to the people who are hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and in prison. Whenever you did that, whenever you extended welcome to the immigrant, you did it unto me. There's this connection. Do you see this, this idea of like, hey, hang on a second. It's not just them. There's also this idea that Christ is all and is in all. So whatever you do to the marginalized, to the oppressed, to those who've been kicked to the curb, to, to the least of these, as Jesus says in his parable, you've done it unto me. Well, then he turns to the goats who are on his left and he says, depart from me. Because when I was hungry, you gave me nothing. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing. You didn't visit me. You let me rot in prison. You didn't welcome me when I was an immigrant. You did, I mean, he goes through the whole list and they're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like we, hang on. And Jesus says, whatever you didn't do, to the least of my brothers and sisters. You didn't do it to me. There's this deep connection between humanity and the Christ. Christ is all and is in all. And by the way, Paul says this in the context of Colossians chapter 3, where he's pointing out that there's all kinds of ways 
that we find to divide, which is a common theme in a lot of his letters to the church. And he says in Colossians chapter 3, listen, there is no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free or circumcised or uncircumcised or Gentile or Jew. Like all of the ways you find the divide, none of that matters because Christ is all and is in all. In other words, there is a foundational connection that we all share, and it's found in this life and this power that holds all things together. It's found in this mystery that is endlessly knowable. That is our connection, which means when, when we say, why does God matter? Well, God matters because what we learn through the divine mystery is that there is no one that doesn't matter. There's no one that doesn't matter. Because all of us breathe the same breath, or I should say we are breathed by the same breath. That all of us have our source, our life, our very breath in the same life of God. That truly what happens to somebody else does in fact impact me. As Joseph Campbell used to say, thou art that, meaning you are them. This recognition that this is ultimately this deep-rooted connection that we have in God. And by the way, if you're interested in looking for God and other people, what we learn in the pattern of Jesus is go ahead and look to the margins. And in this moment that we're currently in, we ought not to look out for our own sake. We ought to look at the margins because it's there that we find the Christ. Now, this is one reason, but the beauty of this is what it means is that Christ is also in you. Christ is all and is in all, which means why does God matter? Well, because the divine tells us you matter. I can't tell you the number of people that I meet with who choose to be vulnerable and share their story with me and are deeply, thoroughly convinced in their own minds they don't matter. They've picked up messages along the way. They have ideas about their worth, about the way that they look, about the way that they feel, about the way that they think. And there's just this rampant self-hatred that we've somehow tapped into. But what we learn from the divine is like, no, 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 no. You matter. You matter. Your breath, your life, your existence, all of that is deeply, deeply sacred. Because we all flow from the same source. You flow from the same source as everybody else. That your life and your, your very breath is holy and sacred. And in all of this matters. The fact that you matter and the fact that others matter and our connection to them. Because so often we seek to be separate and superior. I don't know if you've noticed this. But like we want to do things that make us look a certain way better than whatever group we're comparing ourselves to and separate and different from them because we don't want to ever be confused with them. But this no longer works because what God teaches us, what the divine presence, the, the ultimate being, as Sarna talks about, teaches us is every single one of us are birthed from the same source, that every single particle in existence in the world at this moment is held together by the same source and it's been birthed by the same source, which means everything is sacred. 
And so often we try to create divisions, whether it's sacred and secular, whether it's left or right, black or white, Republican or Democrat, whatever it is, those divisions don't work. They are simply creations that have been put up by human beings so that we can be separate and we can fancy ourselves superior. But they no longer work because everything is sacred. And I wonder, what would happen if we saw all things this way? I'm sitting in my office right now, uh, and next to me are the only filing cabinets I have in my possession. There are two of them. One of my filing cabinets is filled with every sermon outline of every sermon I've ever preached. I haven't counted, but there's hundreds and hundreds, probably actually well over a thousand now, sermons printed out in a file. I did this in imitation of my mentor, and I've never stopped. So I have all of those arranged by date and by (laughs) whatever scripture text I preach from. I sound like a total geek right now. But the second filing cabinet, which is the one on the bottom, that one is filled with gifts from my kids. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff that they go to the store and buy me. I'm talking about the styrofoam plate that has yarn and construction paper glued to it. Now, let's think about this. If I told you, oh, yeah, man, I have this styrofoam um, paper plate or styrofoam plate, and I really, really love it. It's really special to me. You'd be like, hmm, that's kind of weird. That's, I mean, really? Like, you're really into the styrofoam, huh? <laughs> what, what, do you, what would you say to me if I said that? I have a styrofoam plate, and it means so much to me. However, if you were to walk into my office, and I pulled open the drawer, and I pulled out that styrofoam plate with the orange string and the the construction paper, and I turned it around and showed you the name and the date because every single time my kids would give me one of these gifts, a drawing that they did, a picture that they drew, some construction that I had no idea what it was, and I would just be like, that's so good, like a piece of paper with a toothpick in it, whatever it is, I would always write their name down, and I would write the date that they gave it to me. So if I said to you, oh, I... I, yeah, I, I have the styrofoam plate and I really love it. You'd be like, that's, that's really weird. If you walked in my office and I pulled out the styrofoam plate and said, hey, my daughter gave this to me when she was three and I still have it and I love it. You'd be like, oh, oh, I, that's so, that's incredible that you've kept that all these years. And the reason, the difference between those two things is the source from which the plate came. Because if there is a factory that is putting together 50 packs of styrofoam plates and I pull one of those things out and talk about how sacred it is, you think this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. But when I pull this out of my drawer and say this was given to me by my child who put it together with her little hands when she was three and gave it to me with beaming pride and joy and love and I've kept it all of these years because every time I look at it, I'm reminded of those moments when they would give. All of that is about the source in the sacredness of the plate that is in my bottom drawer of my filing cabinet right next to me makes all the difference. Why does God matter? Because God is the source of all things. How might we change the way we view people if we remember they are breathed by the same source that breathes all things? How might we look at our planet differently? Let's think about environmentalism for a second. There are some people who are like, ah, just trash it. Like, whoa, 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 hang on. It's all sacred. 
This all matters. How might we treat it differently if we considered the source from which it came? I'm sitting just a few blocks away from the Capitol building in Denver, Colorado. And over the last five days, there have been protests there. I was down there a couple of days ago handing out water to people who were protesting, uh, watching the, the conviction, the prophetic voices, the, the anguish, the anger, the pain. It was an unbelievably sacred place, powerful, convicting moment. What would change if we began to realize like, we all come from the same source? We can't just roll our eyes and go, oh, this is just what, no, no, no. What would change if we began to see all people like that? So for me, when people say, well, why does God matter? Well, the divine matters because the divine is the source of all things. And when we understand the source of something to be sacred, it informs whatever the something is that that source created. And if the divine, if Christ is all and is in all, then everything, you and me, our enemies, people who are not like us, this world, this planet that we live in and on, all of that matters. All of that is sacred. Why does God matter? Because the God who is love says everything matters and everyone matters. And I think if we can learn to see with this lens of love that we, that we see in Jesus and that we hear about the divine, what a different world would we live in? Not because necessarily the world changes, but we might actually learn to see the world differently. We might actually learn to see that the world is aflame with the divine presence. The wonderful Thomas Merton talks about a moment in which he had this ability to see this kind of vision. And this is what he writes, and I'll close with this. He says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate as if the star sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. And so may you, my friends, see the divine, the life, the light that is in and through all things so that you might see that you matter, that your neighbor matters, that our world matters, that everything and everyone matters. And may this serve to always remind us this is why God matters. And that is it for today. 
I'll see you again in a couple of weeks as I'm with my friend Amanda Henderson talking about her newest book. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.